Amen. Please be seated and turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 15. I have the passage for you on the insert. You will definitely need to have a copy of this passage in front of you in whatever medium you have as we walk through it. It is a passage of monumental importance. I know that can be said of all of Scripture, but this gives us the account of the great Jerusalem council. This is a council that met the elders and the apostles in the first century around 50, uh, 50 AD to discern clarity about the matter of what is the gospel. How could you get more important than answering this question? Now, back to uh, the context. We are in the book of Acts, 15 chapters in now. 17 years have passed from the ascension of Jesus to this council in 50 AD. Much has happened. The gospel has gone from Jerusalem. It went locally to Jerusalem, then out to Samaria, and then it started to reach the uttermost part of the earth, at least the beginnings of that. And as Peter brings the gospel to Cornelius, the way is open to the Gentiles. Um, Paul, who was Saul first, became uh, a disciple and then an apostle himself, uh, halfway in between the 17-year period. And now we've come uh, to a place where the two strongest churches that exist are still the church in Jerusalem, for obvious reasons. You have the apostles largely still there, uh, and you have a growing church. They had the Jewish background that made the connection quick to Christ as the fulfillment, so that becomes a strong church, but under great pressure and persecution. The Antioch church, north of them into modern-day Syria, it's called Antioch, Syria, that church starts to grow exponentially. Gentiles are the the predominant makeup of that church, although there was a synagogue. You remember, that's the main way that the gospel was brought to these various cities in the first century, is they went to the synagogues, the missionaries, the apostles, preached the gospel. Um, Jews were already believers in many cases or came to know Christ, and then that word went out from there, and the Gentiles started coming. And you see, that's the dynamic we come to now 17 years after Pentecost. There are more Gentiles now coming to faith than Jews. The churches are starting to be more, uh, the percentage is more Gentile now. Now, that shouldn't matter. It's we're one in Christ. But if you were a Jewish person who had grown up Jewish and you had followed all the rites and the rituals of Judaism, honored the temple or the synagogue, the commandments, and looked at them in a certain way, oftentimes in an erroneous way, but that was your way, And now these Gentiles are coming in, and they're becoming believers. They're being baptized into the community. It's obvious that they are considered full-ranking members of God's people now. There starts to be a bit of a question about, wait a minute, how could this be so simple for them? I mean, they should have to go through some of the same Jewish rituals of Moses that we went through, right? I mean, it, it can't be as simple as they rest in Christ, and now they're in. Um, They have to go through the rite of circumcision. They have to go through uh, the laws of Moses and and following them and memorize. And and they had all these ideas of things that they should be doing. But it really came down to the sign of circumcision is the real model of how they must become Jewish before they can become Christian. You can see the problem with this. This is an affront to the apostolic gospel. But it's a real tension that develops in these early days. And that sets the stage for the passage we have here. Um, They are in the Antioch church, this strong church. They've come back from their missionary journey to the the region of Galatia. And a problem arises that we see in the initial verses. 
and then they go down to Jerusalem to see how to solve the question or to confirm what needs to be confirmed, and we see the problems there too. This is why it's so important that is the resolution that we find in this passage by God's Holy Spirit's direction. Please hear as I read Acts 15. I'll read the first 21 verses. We'll cover this chapter in two sermons, this sermon and then after Palm Sunday and Easter, we'll pick up again with the second half. This is God's Word. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord in all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Please help us, O Lord, to gather the importance of this council some 2,000 years ago. Your gospel of grace alone by faith alone in Christ alone is timeless and attacks on that gospel are also timeless until Christ returns. Through the consideration of your holy word, please give clarity to our understanding, conviction about your truth, 
joy in knowing Christ and his salvation. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. While the Bible is clear on salvation being by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, every generation has struggled to maintain the purity of this gospel. I know my first blush with someone who had understood the gospel and expressed it clearly and then turned away from it to something else or added something to it happened when I was a new believer. I became a believer as a, in a middle school or thereabouts. I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, and there I was never really sure how to be right with God. I thought it was by maintaining church attendance, doing things I was told, following along, and I never felt secure. I would ask over and over again, uh, those who were teaching classes or the priest that was over our parish, you know, how could I be sure? Uh, and there was never a straight answer given, rest upon the finished work of Christ and you will be saved. I didn't get that clear. It was definitely not said explicitly nor practically applied by almost anybody I knew. No one could really answer the question for me. Then when I'm in a backyard Bible club put on by some local Baptist church, and the pastor says very clearly, shows this picture with a chasm with flames in it, and then me on one side, God on the other, no way to get across. I'm like, yeah, that's me, definitely. And I deserve the flames, by the way, especially in middle school. I knew it for sure. And so there's no way to get to him. And then he puts the cross in the middle and he quotes several passages. And he says, the only way is through Christ and he is the way. And I knew this was right. I just knew this is the answer I'd been looking for. Now, if you know my personality, I was about 13. I went on a bit of an evangelistic crusade with everybody and anyone who would listen to what I had discovered. And it was rough. It was rough going. But I pretty much, I even made an appointment with our local priest to share what I discovered with him, thinking he just needed to hear this afresh maybe. He didn't get it. And uh, it wasn't received well, as you might imagine. Now, I will say that that priest did leave the priesthood and is now a Baptist minister. But that's not because of me. I'm just saying that we had quite a discussion. After that, though, I started to go to the church that the Currys were part of. That's how uh, we knew each other before. Nathan and Ed, we were younger, played soccer together on a little recreation team. But I started going to church where their family was because I knew they preached the Bible clearly. Now, I found it interesting. It was a more fundamentalist church, so they had a kind of set of rules, too, that seemed like people followed, but I heard the gospel very clearly and believed that was, it was clear enough that that was the word preached in Christ alone. There was a student about three years older than us that I really looked up to and thought him to be very, very vocal and vibrant about his faith in Christ, shared Christ at the school that he went to. Um, and I just saw him as someone who I wanted to emulate. He went off to a Christian college. About two years into his college, um, right about the time we were going to college, he went on a summer mission trip somewhere. On that trip, he got mixed into a group that was teaching very clearly, you must believe in Christ and you must be baptized by immersion to be saved. I'm not saying they were, they were Baptists who didn't think that we as Presbyterians did it right. This is they believed you had to be baptized for salvation and in a certain way. So I had a summer job. He came back, was working the same summer job. He started telling people this, people that I had already shared Christ with in our group of about 50 students who worked there for the summer work. There was no small dissension between he and I over this matter. In the, our breaks, we would argue about the gospel. Now, I was raw. I mean, I mean, if you think I'm raw now, you should have seen me then. I mean, it was raw, but I mean, I was sure he was wrong. I knew what I had been rescued from and to add back something was such an affront to me, I didn't care about anything else but making sure he knew he was wrong. 
And so we went at it over this issue. And that is the first time I personally experienced someone who clearly understood the gospel of grace alone, by faith alone, through Christ alone, who added something to it so easily it seemed. It was like nothing for him. And he would still talk about the gospel in the front, but then would add on soon after this addition. I believe that we as people, even redeemed people, we always want to default to something we do to make ourselves right with God. Could be salvation is believing in Jesus and being baptized in a certain way. Believing in Jesus and some say speaking in tongues. You've got to do that. Some people say believing in Jesus and you need to refrain from some of these other things. You shouldn't be gambling or you shouldn't be drinking alcohol or you shouldn't be smoking or drinking or, or, or dancing or whatever it may be. They don't say it that way, but that's the exact sense you get that, well, I believe in the gospel. Yeah, but you do this, this, and this. What is that saying? It's saying you can't be right with God because you're doing this, this, and this. Whatever the addition is, it always seems reasonable to the people adding it. When the church becomes too ingrown and disconnected from the wider Christian community, it can come up with some terrible distortions of the saving gospel. Acts 15 is the story of the so-called Jerusalem Council. This is a gathering of key Christian leaders from several local congregations to decide a profoundly doctrinal matter, really to confirm a, prof a very important doctrinal matter, the most important doctrinal matter there is. It doesn't just concern the church, it concerns all mankind because it's what the church is to steward, and all mankind, whether it knows it or appreciates it or not, depends on the church to pre present this gospel that is given by Christ and through the apostles in Scripture for us to safeguard and to proclaim. It's that important, this council, and what it decides. This question is asked regularly by Christians because the gospel is attacked regularly. What is the gospel? What is it? Things come up and they cloud or they press upon us and we get off focus. Remember what Barnabas did to encourage the believers after they became believers? Keep on in the faith. Keep trusting in Christ. Do what you're doing. Stay focused. Here we find a counsel for this purpose. Let's walk through the passage and see basically how distortions of the gospel most prominently happen within the church first. And then on the back end, we'll see that there's an external pressure, too, that will come upon us. And in the middle, we'll see the importance of clearly defining and defending the gospel. Verse 1 and verse 5. Let's start there. Just look at those two verses for a moment, because you'll see the problem that arises. I described it in the introduction a bit, but now let's see it a little more clearly. Verse 1. But some men came down from Judea. So we're in Antioch, which is north come down is because they're descending in altitude. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now the Antioch church was the big, fast-growing church. Now it's not just one church. There were multiple local churches, house churches. That was typically how it happened in the first century. They would have common meetings from time to time among the different groups that were meeting, uh, but it was spread out, lots of different locations with elders appointed throughout uh, the existing churches in Antioch, and Gentiles were coming to faith in droves. Now, it's true, ethnicity shouldn't matter, right? Uh, Peter made that clear, but here's an interesting feature we learn later. Even Peter, 
Some 10 years after meeting Cornelius at this point, even he was starting to withdraw a bit to his Jewish culture. It's something that, that Paul has to confront him on in one of his epistles. So we know it's a draw. It's not meant to be malicious. At first, I go with what's comfortable, and so the Jews, even though the church is integrated, they're spending a lot of time with one another. There's a clique of sorts developing, and then when they see these Gentiles coming in by droves, some say, wait, 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 hold on. This can't be exactly right. I mean, for so long, the Jewish church was so close, so closed, and so anti, it just seemed like it wasn't going to grow. It was shrinking, actually. And now it's busting open with the preaching of the gospel. And there's a response that comes from those who had such a long history in the faith to those who were coming to Christ who were so new and so fresh. They came and said, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's clearly stating what the add-on is, the gospel plus, which is no gospel at all. Now, look to verse 5. The, the verse 1 is when they're in Antioch. They go down to Jerusalem to clarify the question, uh, the answer that was clearly given by Paul and Barnabas. They were bringing it there, though. And the reason they bring it down to Jerusalem is it's seen as such an important church in the early church. And this issue was widespread. Um, it was natural for it to happen. With Christianity starting through Judaism, there would be some pressure like this. It shouldn't surprise us. And so they decide, because of the magnitude of the issue, how widespread it was, Let's gather in Jerusalem, the apostles and the elders, and we'll settle this matter so we can go forward with the evangelistic effort of the church with great clarity about the gospel. So verse 5, as this council, this gathering begins, notice what happens. Some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees. Now see, it's believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees. They were Jewish Pharisees who came to Christ. So they're born again, but they have that in their background. In fact, the Apostle James was friendly with the Pharisees. He knew the Sanhedrin very well, may have been part of it. But now they're Christians, they're genuinely Christians. But they too are struggling with what they're seeing. They belong to the party of the Pharisees, verse 5, and said, it's necessary to circumcise them in order for them to keep the law of Moses. Now, they indicate a bit of their error about understanding the law of Moses. Um, this is a whole other sermon, but they're leaning too heavily on the performance of it. Uh, there's a separation between the law and the gospel that needs to be clear. And the Pharisees, you can understand, having such a struggle with this. But they bring up the same issue that was brought up by those who opposed the gospel in Antioch. So we know it's an issue that must be addressed on a wider level than just one local church. John Stott said rightly, the issue was immense. The way of salvation was at stake. The gospel was in dispute. The very foundations of the Christian faith were being undermined. The true gospel was being very clearly preached in the apostolic age. We know this, and by other Christians, not just the apostles. Sinners can be saved by trusting in Christ alone for salvation. The gift of the Holy Spirit came upon those people. These were people baptized to identify with Christ. This is the sign that unified the whole of the church now. True for the Jews and true for the Gentiles. But the Jews in these occurrences were trying to add something. To be clear about the attack, once again, verse 1, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. Verse 5, it is necessary to circumcise in order for them to keep the law of Moses. Now, before we move to the, de the defending of the gospel, 
Know this point blank. Additions to the gospel render the gospel no gospel at all. It's not an honest mistake. It's a damning thing. Additions are statements about the insufficiency of Christ's work. If it's the gospel who is Christ plus something, then his work was not enough. Do you see the importance of this? This is not a little matter. This isn't a denominational matter. This is a Christian matter. This is, did Jesus accomplish salvation or not? Additions to Christ's sacrifice cheapens that sacrifice and ultimately discredits it. It's no saving work any longer. It's not good news if we still have more to do to be saved. Additions to the gospel are attacks upon the gospel. In the first place that the gospel usually comes under attack is, within, is inside the church. There may be external pressures that bring it out, but it happens within the church. In fact, we know this to be true because Paul and Barnabas, who went to Galatia and preached the, script, preached the gospel and uh, saw so many conversions, it wasn't long after that Paul has to write a letter back to those churches that he visited twice, if you remember. And look at what he says in Galatians 1. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. That's the earliest epistle Paul writes. It's the first problem he has to address. We should understand it will constantly be a challenge, the addition of something to Christ. Warnings about internal attacks to the gospel are replete in the New Testament. Later in the book of Acts, after Paul and Silas visit Ephesus, um, they're leaving and they say to the elders at Ephesus, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Romans 16, later in Paul's ministry, towards the end actually, he writes, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. In the book of Jude, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. It's often that the gospel's attack from within. Now recognize, there are errors that come up in the midst of the body of Christ, and it's something that can be corrected. The person isn't a wolf because they are wrong theologically. We have accountability to help that person or those people come into line with what the Scripture says. That, that's not a malicious thing meant. It's just an error people fall into. In the beauty of accountability in the church with many leaders and locations uh, connected to one another, like we see here, can bring correction. But there are wolves that will come in from within, and they'll most commonly add something to the gospel. That's, that's the easiest way to get people away from Christ, is to add something to Christ. Now, let's look at the passage further, especially the middle section, where you have the gospel being defended, essentially. It's, there's discernment that happens in this Council, 
and then there is a defense given. Uh, when these uh, different people try to add to the gospel by demanding that the Gentiles uh, become Jewish, essentially, outwardly, um, we get a sharp response already in Antioch. Verse 2, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Some versions characterize this as a fierce debate with great controversy. There was no doubt a heated exchange with Paul and Barnabas and these people who were teaching this. The gospel was at stake. And there should be no doubt that Paul and Barnabas were clear on this. They had to recognize, pastorally sensed, that this is an issue that's going to come up in other local churches. We need to address this on a wider level. And so, as the passage unfolds, Paul and Barnabas, the second part of verse 2, and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. This is a time when the apostles are still alive. But the elders have already been given care of the church. And so, jointly, they lead the church. So let's go to Jerusalem and clarify this. It was a symbolic mission with great substance, for sure, uh, to settle the vitally important question, was there something besides faith in Christ necessary for salvation? This message that Paul and Barnabas have been teaching all over in these outermost parts, is it different than what they've been preaching? Had they been missing something? We see the connectedness of the church that allowed for an important cooperation to analyze this controversy. It's a good message for us today. And we can also see the confidence in Paul and Barnabas. They're not worried that they've been teaching the wrong thing. Look at verse 3. On their way to this council, so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria. What were they doing as they went? Keeping their mouth shut until they got things clear? No. They were clear. Describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. Now, this is what's important. They're setting the stage for something that will be integral to the council. They knew the doctrinal truth of the gospel. It's always been the same in the Bible. In the Old Testament, it was, you must look to God for salvation through his Messiah that he will send. All the things they did pushed them towards that end. They could not keep the law, so they had to go towards the sacrificial system which pictured the one who would be sacrificed for them. Salvation in the Old Testament was by grace through faith in the Christ that would come, even though they didn't know of him like we do. That's the same gospel in the Old Testament. Paul was clear on it. He now had the clarity of the fulfillment of Christ, post-Christ's work. And so now the gospel is that with much more clarity in who the person of Christ is and what his finished work exactly was. So they're confident in their doctrinal correctness. What they're bringing to bear is this. Hey, by the way, everybody, the same Holy Spirit that gave us tongues in the early church for that sign to unbelieving Jews primarily, that same Holy Spirit that indwelled us that allowed us to have faith and lay hold of Christ, we see all the same evidence in the Gentiles. We watched it with our own eyes. We preached the gospel. We saw the Holy Spirit fall upon them. Um, we saw them fall unto Christ, be baptized into the church, and they relayed this story. So not only was it doctrinally true, the experience substantiated what they already knew, and they were confident and they told this story as they went down. In fact, it's the first thing they say when they arrive at the council. Look at verse 4. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. So the people at large were there, the apostles and the elders. This is a, an important matter. And they declared all that God had done with them. See how it's all coming together. The stage is set. 
Now, while they're doing this, it doesn't take long at all, while they're doing this in this large assembly, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary though. You can just hear them now, yeah, this is great, Paul, but it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. You could just see the passion that would come from these lifelong Jews, especially of the Pharisee party. And mind you, feel for them in this. If you were a Pharisee in the Jewish order and then you became a Christian, you were, you were really on the outs. You were really the focus of the Jewish Pharisees because you're the sellout of sellouts. And here they are all torn up when they see this and they speak out loud these words. The council ensues, verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Please notice, it wasn't a congregational vote. Uh, the elders and the apostles were deciding. The church was there, the church was looking, but they were dependent upon those God appointed that they identified to figure this matter for them. And what is most interesting is who speaks first. Because this is the very person who was struggling with his association. He was drifting back towards becoming more Jewish in his culture than he knows he should have been. In fact, Paul has a confrontation with him that's recorded elsewhere in Scripture. But after all this talk has gone on, Peter has listened for a time. In verse 7, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, now what I want you to pay attention to as we walk through this is how he gives the gospel as he defends it. Please see this. It's very important. Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth, now start following closely, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel, Christ. We know that's true. We've seen that already. The Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe, have faith, trust in the message of the gospel. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by circumcision? No. He cleansed their hearts by faith. Circumcision was a picture of what God would do, and now he had done. Now it was done. And there's a new sign, it's baptism. But you notice he doesn't mention baptism here because he doesn't want to conflate any sign with the gospel in salvation. The sign has very important import for sure. But this is about the gospel, how a person's saved. And he's being very careful here in what he words and what he says. Verse 9 again, he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by faith. Faith in who? In Christ. In the gospel, who is Christ. Goes on, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that, by the way, neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Wait a minute. You want to say to the Gentiles who've just come new to the faith that they need to follow this and that rule. By the way, Jewish brothers and sisters, Peter might say, remember how good we did at that? Remember how great we were at obeying God? And you want to do that to them? We've been freed from this. We are no longer bound by this same oppression that we had before. Now, it was a misunderstanding, for sure, of the law and its nature and so forth, but surely many people thought if we kept the law, then we'd be all right. Nobody could keep it. It was meant to drive them to Christ. It's a beautiful explanation of the gospel while defending it and explaining it. 
in just a few words. I just see it in summary. Verse 7, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Verse 8, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart, hearts by faith. Verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. What a passage. I mean, he summarizes the whole of it there, that we believe we will be saved through grace, undeserved favor shown to people who deserve wrath. We will be saved through grace. How? Of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. There is only one way to be saved. It's by faith in Christ. They are saved the same, we, same way we are. We should not add anything to this. And here's the response. They didn't take a vote. They didn't hold up cards like we do in General Assembly or say aye or nay. But when you get a group of elders and apostles together debating fiercely, and this is the response, and all the assembly fell silent. No more argument. Peter's right. It's not because he's Peter, by the way. It's because he's right, because it's the gospel. And it's great that it is Peter, because Peter didn't get it exactly right just maybe months before. He was struggling with this. And then what follows? So the doctrine settled. Now, please notice what follows. And this is the order of it. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Doctrine first is the foundation. Now we interpret experience in light of the doctrine that's being taught. We should expect right doctrine to have a result. And so let's hear testimony to it. And that's exactly what we get here. People who are completely knowledgeable of the right doctrine. We're teaching and preaching. And by the way, this is what God did with the preaching of this doctrine, with the proclamation of Christ. It's a beautiful picture supporting what the gospel does in its effect. Now, this is interesting. Again, coming from a Roman Catholic background, I was always taught that Peter was the Pope, you know, the most important of the apostles. And he was an important apostle. All of them were. But I want you to notice who speaks finally here. It's not Peter. In fact, it's interesting that it would be James. James who is friendly with the Pharisees, the Christian Pharisees. So James is the one who actually speaks a kind of a word of decree. He's gathering what the consensus is, no doubt. Um, but he's the one who speaks finally. And it must have been for those Pharisees there, great, it's James who's speaking. Maybe they're thinking that a little bit. We don't know for sure. But James has heard all the evidence too. Verse 13, after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that is Peter, related how God first visited the Gentiles. Right here, brothers and sisters, pause. Look at this next phrase. You know you'll have heard it before. Look what James says. God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Do you understand the profundity of that? That is a statement that was uttered only to the Israel in the Old Testament. But Israel was only the beginning of of God's covenant promises to be a blessing to the world and call a people to himself would be a mixture of Jews and Gentiles and of Romans and Greeks and of men and of women. It would be a unifying gospel message. In fact, this is the very thing Paul emphasizes in Galatians. The, the wall comes down between all these divisions we have externally because in Christ we are one people. And he is saying about the Gentiles to the Jews, it was God's intention to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. And he quotes from Amos. And it's interesting, he quotes directly from the Greek version of the Old Testament that would have been well known by that crowd. Very well known by that crowd. 
even with a mixture from other parts outside of Jerusalem. And he quotes Amos, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. So he's going to bring a Davidic Christ, a Davidic Messiah. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That's the Christ himself that's prophesied in Amos. Verse 17, that the remnant of mankind, the Gentiles, outside of the Jews, may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, another covenantal term used only of Israel in the Old Testament, but now it's referred to anyone who believes. Who are the sons and daughters of Abraham? Those who believe on Christ. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. James ties what they're seeing with the salvation, the salvation of the Gentiles as a fulfillment of Scripture. Through the Davidic Christ, the Gentiles are grafted in to the people of God. And the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant is in full movement. In this light, James renders this brief judgment in verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is, that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. The gospel will need regular defenses in every generation. This is just our calling. This is what the church should be about. There will be multiple affronts to the gospel from within. That's what we've primarily seen here. I think uh, in my lifetime how many times things have cropped up to try to add something to the gospel. There's always something at any given moment. Um, this is the anatomy of how it works. Um, you could be in a community, the church is there in the community, and say a casino opens up, you know, three blocks down, and it starts to cause a lot of problems for families. And uh, people are going into financial ruin over it, and it's really bad for the community. And the church says, this is terrible what's happening here with this gambling outfit. We really should speak against it. Uh, it's not right what it's doing to families. And it starts out with good intentions because the church has some answers to those things, but the church's main call is the gospel first, right? And the gospel transforms and helps us to rightly interpret things. But what happens is people at church are like, you know, we got to do more. And the pastor's like, we got to preach the gospel because that's still what's needed first. I agree that's an issue, but the gospel first, I'm like, yes, but we're not doing enough. You know, if we really believe the gospel, we would do something about that gambling over there. You know what? Church, we should not gamble anymore. We should stop gambling. And so be Believe in Jesus and don't gamble. Now, you think that's funny, but that's exactly how, I'm not saying you're saying it's funny, it does seem ridiculous, but that's exactly how it happens. Um, it's something we view out there that is a bad problem, but we misalign what our first calling is, is to proclaim the gospel. This other thing comes alongside as a cause, and before you know it, it takes over the gospel. That's exactly what's happening in what we see is uh, the social justice gospel. That people, It's no gospel at all, but it's the idea that look at all the oppression in the world. You Christians should be doing something about it. Agreed. If we believe on Christ, we should be. But let's not get it before what we're, our first calling is. Because ultimately, what we're called to do is proclaim the gospel that frees men and women from God's wrath. That's the most oppressive thing you could ever have upon you, and it's eternal. And so when we preach the gospel, they're freed from that. Then, with new eyes, we can help with those issues that we'll never fully solve until Christ comes back. But we should try to address them secondarily. But if we're not careful, this comes up here. And then it becomes the main thing we're about. And before you know it, it becomes this. All well-meaning at the beginning. And true that we should be doing something about these things. But one is before the other in that relationship. K. 
Kent Hughes said, history and experience have proven that anything made a co-requirement with faith soon shoves faith aside and becomes the means of salvation. It's the thing we focus on. It becomes our effort. When Christians become more passionate about relieving people from, say, their social oppression, which is temporal, than helping them escape the wrath of God, which is eternal, they have succumbed to a false gospel. And any of us can have this happen in many other ways. Something else I want you to notice from this passage, we see the wisdom of the plurality of leaders. Do you see that? Not just one individual calling everything. This is a group of uh, appointed, divinely appointed men confirmed by the church to deal with important matters. And there are cross locations. It's not just one church in a tight area. It's dealing with other perspectives, not as engrafted into a situation they may find. Uh, after the service, an hour and a half after, after the fellowship lunch that I invite you to, if you're especially a newcomer, after we have lunch, I'm going to get in a car, go over to New Hope PCA, join with Jim Baxter, the pastor there, and Tim Elliott, their assistant pastor. We're going to drive to Wichita, and at 5 o'clock, we hope to be part of an installation service at Evangel Presbyterian, where a new senior pastor will be installed, and many other elders from other churches will be there as they can be. And it's a small sign of what we think the Bible teaches about a plurality of leaders coming together to uphold one another in a doctrinal accountability. That's very, very important. Um, I'm ordained by the presbytery, and they, after you called me, checked to make sure I was all right. Now, you may differ with them now, but the point is it's done. I've been here 23 years now. But the point is it's accountability. And that's what the Presbyterian model tries to do is emulate what happened here in the Jerusalem Council. That's what we mean by Presbytery or General Assembly. We don't have apostles, so we're not gifted in that sense, but we have many men with the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit to help us understand the right way in which to proceed in various matters. I like to say to people jokingly, but if you've been in other traditions, you'll know that Presbyterianism is it's slow for sure, but it's the worst form of church government except for all the other ones. If you've been to some of the other ones, you know what I'm saying. And it's slow. That's the big knock on it because it takes time to deliberate. But I think it's safest. And it's modeled at least loosely after what you see here. Finally, I want you to notice what James says because I think that it uh, points to a reality. Um, there's two reasons he says what he says, and I'll get to those. But let's look at it. His judgment is that they should not trouble the Gentiles who turn to God. So circumcision not necessary. Let's get that off, off the table. But he does say something else. Now, notice it's after the gospel's been clarified, so we shouldn't construe this to say, oh, wait a minute, is he adding? No, no, he's, this is a, there's pastoral importance to what he says. But we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Now, we know he's not rescinding the dietary law because that was something that Peter opened the way to with the sheets. So what is he doing here? He then goes on to say, from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is ready, he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. He had always called the Jewish people to be separate from the culture they were in. And there were certain aspects of the Greco-Roman culture that were thoroughly pagan and wicked. And the, their temple system with sacrifices to false gods, that was part of it. And the strangling was the way they did the killing, so it connects with it. So it had to do with pagan worship in the call to the Jewish people to not commit idolatry, which was their problem over and over again, wasn't it? And so the Jews were following that part of the law of Moses. James is basically saying, this is a wise practice for a couple reasons. One, 
you have Jews in your church that have always practiced this, and you want to keep harmony, there's no reason to offend because they're trying to defend against idolatry. They're not trying to add to the gospel. They're trying to keep away from the enemies of the gospel infiltrating their thinking, especially with trusting in false gods and paganism. And, and the sexual impurity came from the temple prostitutes and everything built around that false religious system. So it's to keep harmony, but it's also there will be cultural attacks on the gospel that we believe. It's not a call to separate from the culture and be uh, off on our own in a monastery. It's a call to be mindful of things in the culture that could pressure us into doing things that will drive a wedge between us and our Lord. And these are things like this, worshiping false gods, engaging in the practices of false religions. So it's really a defense against the external attacks in the gospel. The first, it's all brought on by internal issues. Now he closes with, beware, Gentile brothers and sisters. You come from a culture that does this. You may have partaken in it because you're from that culture. But stay away from that now. You belong to Christ now. Stay away from that. I will draw you away from your trust in Christ if you get sucked in to that. That is what he is trying to accomplish with these last words. The warning from James has this application for us for sure. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. John Stott, who I began with, says, in summary, the unanimous decision of the Jerusalem Council liberated the gospel from its Jewish swaddling clothes into being God's message for all humankind and gave the Jewish Gentile church a self-conscious identity as the reconciled people of God, the one body of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, please safeguard your church, and in particular our local church, Redeemer, and our presbytery, the Heartland Presbytery, and our denomination, the PCA, from any distortion of your gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And where there is error, I pray that you would bring it to the forefront and to be dealt with in the courts that you have ordained. Give us conviction and passion about the purity of your gospel. I pray for the Christian church across denominational lines the world over. May you grant doctrinal purity to your true children so that they might experience the growth that comes from the gospel being preached, not always by numbers, but by depth and by understanding and by joy that comes from knowing the true God. However, you would bring fruit to the church. We pray that you would give us purity to be agents of, the delivering this, of delivering this message. Keep us from straying and give us strength of conviction and proclamation. We pray that you would bring fruit from the preaching of your gospel here uh, for your glory and for our good. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.